Move Against Cancer podcast. We are your hosts, Gemma Hillier Moses, Move Charity founder, lover of all things running, travel, and tea. And I'm Lucy Gossage, oncologist, outdoor adventure lover, and 5K UA co founder. I'm Georgie Freeman, lover of exploring new places and the 5K UA manager. The reason we originally set up this podcast was to inspire and support and empower people to move and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. In this podcast, we want to share the stories of ordinary people doing incredible things as they find their own way to move against cancer. Going through cancer treatment can feel incredibly isolating and lonely. There's so much behind every individual cancer journey and so much of it is unseen and often unspoken. We want to explore the ways our guests navigate their way through the unimaginable. And we hope that by doing this, we can provide you with some tips, some tools and some inspiration to make your journey that little bit easier. We'll cover every aspect of living with and after cancer, from physical and psychological well-being, identity, goal setting, mindset, staying active, grief and loss, family and friends, and so much more. We will make you laugh, but we also may make you cry. But we guarantee that you'll take something away from every single episode. So we do really hope that you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome back to the Move Against Cancer podcast. It's Lucy Gossage here. Um, I hope you're all really well. I hope you've been enjoying the last couple of weeks of summer. Hopefully we've got a few more weeks of sunshine coming up. Um, I actually uh, booked myself a little mini adventure last week. Um, I took myself off cycling for a few days. Um, yeah, I, 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 the last few weeks at work have been pretty pretty hectic and I um I book in my what I call them kind of mini resets um every now and then where I just take myself off do something crazy and get my head out of work and um yeah it makes a massive difference to me um I'd highly recommend them um preempting kind of burnout I guess anyway um did you listen to the last episode with Sophie Jade and Ashley so I listened to it running home from work a couple of weeks ago and I actually had shivers down my spine when I was listening to it. Um, people often ask me why I love working with young people with cancer. Um, and I find it really hard to explain how it can be so fun and so fulfilling despite the obvious challenges. Um, and I've actually always found it really hard to articulate why I chose oncology, particularly oncology with young people as my career. But I was listening to the three of them talk and I came away and I just, it just really reiterated to me that the main reason I love it is because I get to work with people like Sophie, Jade and Ashley. Um, honestly, it's really hard to describe the strength, the resilience, the tenacity that young people with a cancer diagnosis, with a cancer diagnosis develop. But I think anyone who listened to this podcast would get a bit of a feel for why I love my job. Um, some of the strategies they talk about are so relevant to absolutely anyone with or without a cancer diagnosis. I wish I'd been as wise as them at their age, but I hope that if you listen to it, um, and I really would urge you to go back because I think there's something for everybody in that episode. I hope if you listen to it, you get a little bit why it's such a privilege to have the job that I have working with young people with cancer. Um, also, I, I'm not going to lie, hearing them talk about the MOVE programme, 
made me so proud to be part of Move Charity. Um, I can't imagine what Helen, who initially supported all three of them um, individually through the, the online programme, felt like when she was listening. I think I'd have been crying. Um, Gemma, you've set up something amazing. And Helen, you are, I mean, you're clearly just life changing. Anyway, today uh, we thought we'd do something a little bit different um, and talk with someone who supports people to find their own strategies to move against cancer. So Naomi Pye is a clinical psychologist in Nottingham. Uh, she supports a lot of my patients. Um, and while I know she makes a massive difference to the way uh, to the way I guess that they find their way through cancer, um, and the way that they deal with whatever's going on in their life. I actually very, know very little about what she actually does with them. I know that she makes a huge difference and she helps them hugely, but I don't actually know how she does this. So today I'm really looking forward to chatting with Naomi to do a deep dive into the work she does um, and find out a little bit more about some of the strategies she shares with those she supports to help them. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, you might have noticed that this is quite a long episode. Um, it's not a whole episode with Naomi. We've got a bonus 20 minutes at the end with a completely different topic uh, where Georgie talks to Sinead Connolly about her experience racing Norseman. This is one of the hardest triathlons in the world. Sinead's raised nearly £8,000 to move charity. It's a really interesting listen, um, completely different and perhaps a, a, a little bit more lighthearted. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, I hope you enjoy and um, over to Naomi. Hello, Naomi. Nice to see you. Thanks very much for joining me. <laughs> nice to see you, Lucy. So we kind of work together. We do work together. But we've actually only met face to face a couple of times very briefly in clinic, haven't mm. we? We have. We have. <laughs> so you, um, when did you start at Nottingham? About, well, start working with, with some of the TYA cancer patients. Was it a couple of years ago? Uh, not so almost. It was April last year, so about 18 months or so now. Well, I remember, I know that my life has become so much easier having you there to help out support some of our patients. Um, so I know that, yeah, it's something that you, the work you do makes a massive, massive difference. Um, so you are a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. um, I guess a lot of people might not know what that means um, and how you get into it. So tell tell me a little bit about how you ended up where you are. <laughs> so it tends to be quite a long journey to you qualifying as a clinical psychologist. So we will all do a an undergraduate, three-year undergraduate degree in, in psychology or an accredited subject. And then often people will spend a a few years doing some relevant experience working as an assistant psychologist or support workers or group leaders, things like that. Uh, many people, me included, did some postgraduate education. So I just did a master's in that time as well. And then we do a final three year doctoral training course to qualify. So it's a really long journey, um, but it means that we are, are trained in a really wide range of different therapies and different models and working with um, different populations and in different settings. So our, our training ends up being being really broad. Um, so although we are trained to a doctoral level, we're not medical doctors. So we don't prescribe medication or anything like that. 
And how how much of your training is kind of theoretical and how much is face to face? Because I did medicine in in the old school way mm. at came and you know, I had three years where I didn't see a patient and it was all so irrelevant to <laughs> to what we do now. <laughs> What's it like doing psychology training? So definitely your undergraduate degree is is kind of all lecture based, very theoretical, kind of really laying down that uh, base of understanding of psychology and, and how the human brain kind of works and how we are as, as human beings. Once you then get to the doctoral level, so the final part of qualifying, that is a mix of, so it's a taught doctoral course. So it's a mix of being on placement. So you're out there working with a range of different kind of groups and different people. Um, there's lectures as well. And we undertake a, a piece of research um, and write a thesis in that as well so that there are hard three years <laughs> I've got it so yeah it sounds it sounds more challenging than medical school I think in many ways <laughs> particularly because it's it's crammed in can you mm. remember the first time you spoke to would you call them a client or a patient what I don't know what the what phrase you'd use but can you remember that first encounter you had I can, I can. I had my very first assistance post um, pretty much straight out of my undergrad. So I was kind of 21, not really had that much clinical experience. I worked in an adult mental health team and I remember being handed my first kind of case file. Um, and it was it was someone with um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I bought every book that I could find <laughs> on OCD to try and help me plan the work I was going to do. And um, it was wonderful. But I think that that first time you sit with someone, you think, oh, gosh, here I am. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, well, I'm sure like you, I, well, I felt, felt such, I still do sometimes when I meet patients, I still feel like a complete imposter. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. first time. like oh my god how can I be be here trying to help Mm. them um and you now work specifically with people with cancer um Mm -hmm. particularly a lot of TYA so teenage and young young adult patients don't you yeah that's right what led you into into that area out of all the areas of psychology So as part of my uh, doctoral training in the final year we get to do a specialist placement and I knew I always knew that I really wanted to do my specialist placement in palliative care and I did do that and that uh, as part of that I did end up working with a number of people with a cancer diagnosis and I just really I fell in love with that kind of work and and the pleasure that it is for people to open their lives to you at that point um you know when they're often going through you know one of if not the most difficult times in their lives and and they really share that with you and to feel that you can really make a difference um I know that can sound a bit a bit of a cliche but actually you know coming home at the end of every day knowing that you've done something that's helped make things a little bit easier for someone um it's just it's really brilliant it's it's hard to describe sometimes like because people Mm. often say to me I'm sure you get similar questions like how can you how can you do it? And particularly working with young people, some of them who don't have curable cancers. Mm. How how do you how do you answer that question? Like, isn't it depressing? <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I hear that. I hear that a lot. Like, oh gosh, that must be you know so sad all the time. That must be really hard. And yeah, sometimes it is. Um, but lots of times as well, you see people coming 
through treatment you see people you know getting to a point where they're re-engaging with with their life they're getting all of these things back on track and you know they're at this kind of point in their life where they're getting to redefine what their future is going to look like what do I want to do who do I want to be and being part of that with someone is incredibly rewarding I think and you know seeing the resilience I think in people mm-hmm. um I think sometimes when you hear about the things that people go through it can be really easy to think oh gosh I just I couldn't do that and to see how people cope with some really difficult things is incredibly awe-inspiring and impressive at times I oh I agree and I I know you listened to the last episode um of the movie gets cancer podcast mm. with Ashley and Sophie and Jade and I was listening to that running running back last night I, I kind of mm. felt this this shows why I love what I do because They've been through mm. such tough times, but the resilience and the the positivity yeah. and the way they found their found their way through it, it's just so inspiring. And I kind of listened to it. I was like, if you listen to this, you'll understand why it's not all depressing. Because even in the yeah. worst, you can just take so much from from the people that we work with. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think listening to them talk um, yesterday when I was listening to that episode, I just thought there are so many lessons in this that anybody could learn from, Um, you know, not just people who are facing kind of really difficult things, but for all of us, you know, Mm. there's skills in there that are just really great life lessons as well. And I think I was so impressed listening to them talk and and what they'd learned from from their experiences and kind of taking that forward. It was incredible. Yeah, I definitely have um, the the la- well. Anyone listening to us talking needs to go back and listen. But the the two ladders and taking out the word should mm. from your vocabulary, I think were two two bits that really stuck with me. Um, so yeah, when I so so you're now around, you're available for my patients. Mm-hmm. But when I broached the subject of a psychologist with my patients, I don't, I don't really know how to do it. Sometimes I feel that they're looking at me like thinking that I think that they're mad, which nothing's further from the truth. Um, yeah. But sometimes I feel that they, they think that I'm insinuating they're weak, that they're not coping. What, mm. how, what do you think is the, how do you think is the best way for a doctor or a nurse to bring up psychology support with with people diagnosed with cancer I think you're really right I think sometimes hearing the word psychologist immediately kind of makes people take a step back it can be quite a difficult thing especially if people don't really know what that means or have um, other experiences that can be quite difficult around that Um, so really you know what we're there to do is to meet with people to understand the kind of difficulties that they're facing and things that are really tricky, um, to make sense of that, and then to help them learn different strategies or new strategies to help make some of those things a bit easier. And often, you know, the things that people experience when they're struggling are things that we all experience as human beings. You know, if we think about uh, people who might be particularly anxious, like we all have times in our lives when we feel anxious and things that worry us or, or we find really difficult to deal with. So I think sometimes it's they're just good life skills, but sometimes 
the things that people are experiencing are having such an impact on their lives that it's stopping them from doing other things or things that are important to them. And sometimes we can help find strategies that can ease that a little bit. And how 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 important from your point of view is knowing their current medical situation to to the way that you approach each kind of consultation? It's definitely helpful now, um, because the things that the worries, for example, that people might face if they are uh, just at the point of being diagnosed, so they might not have started treatment yet. So some of the worries, worries might be about how am I going to deal with treatment? What does this diagnosis mean for me? Compared to the worries that they might have kind of while they're in treatment or after that. So where they are on that kind of journey, I guess, does change sometimes the conversations that we have. Um, I tend to know a little bit about <laughs> the medical side of things. So I have some knowledge, but um, often the people that I meet uh, coming into therapy teach me a whole lot about what they're going through. <laughs> yeah, well, we always, well, we all learn from our patients, don't we, every single yeah. day. So when, if you meet and you say, I say, you know, I've I've got a 25-year-old called Ben. Um, do you mind seeing him? He's really struggling with his diagnosis and uncertainty about the future at the moment. You then meet Ben how how do you start? Because I, you know, I all I know is that I send people to you. You have a lot of time. You have a huge amount of skills, and you help them process whatever difficulties they've got, and they come back stronger. And I, I, you know, I'm not just saying this. I've never had a patient who's come back and said she was awful. It was a waste of time. Um, <laughs> uh, I, but so, so, but I don't actually know what you do when you when you you know meet these people. So can you just mm. take take us through what what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that first time that someone meets a psychologist, we really understand that it it can be quite daunting, especially like we've just said, if you don't know what a psychologist does or who they are or what's expected of you. So for me, that first meeting is really just about us meeting each other and kind of getting to know each other a bit more. So I tend to kind of introduce myself and then say, you know, this first session is for us to get to know each other and then hand over to them really to tell me what they think is important for me to know. It might be kind of what they've been through recently, what they're facing at the moment, um, things that might be worried about or that have been difficult. And we'll also talk as well about kind of who's important to them in their life, who they've got around them that's supporting them, the things that they enjoy doing, because those are really important as well. Um, and to just have that space that's really non-judgmental. They can come and say anything in that space um, to us. Um, and it's really to kind of understand what's going on for them. Sometimes that takes more than one meeting. Sometimes people come into that first session and don't want to share all these really difficult things with someone who's a complete stranger and that's all right mm. you know we can have that time to get to know each other and for people to feel comfortable and, and ready to kind of discuss some of those things and and do you so I guess I mean sorry no no that's all right I was just going to say you know um I guess sometimes we, we'll have a couple of sessions to really uh think about what's kind of going on for people um, and to think about what they want to get from those sessions as well, because that's that won't be the same for everyone. Um, 
So often we're really someone saying, you know, this is what I hope to be different by the end of these sessions. And do you have in your head, um, presumably you've got a whole kind of toolbox of psychological strategies and techniques that you can use. Mm. Do you do you explain those techniques to the people that you're working with? How, how do you, I don't know. So some that I've heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, throw that out. Mm. I've heard of that. I kind of yeah. loosely know what it is. Um, do you explain to the person you're working with, like, we're going to try this technique or do you almost just do it without putting a label on it? Uh, so yes, I do. I, I tend to be quite open and transparent with that, um, in terms of the types of models and therapies that, that we use. Um, so you know, after we've done that kind of assessment and we've really talked about what's going on for someone, the next step for us is to create together an understanding about what's contributed to the difficulties that they're having and what kind of things might be maintaining them or kind of keeping those things going. And I'll then bring, you know, my knowledge of kind of psychological theories and models into that to say, well, this is how we can understand what's going on for you. And then that really helps us to pick or to choose a model that's most helpful to that person. So I think one of the advantages for me in my training is that we're trained in a range of different models. So I can say, well, I think, you know, this model might be particularly helpful for this person. And I'll talk to them about that and say, you know, this is what this kind of model looks at. This is how it works. These are the kind of strategies that we'll think about together and see if that's a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't, we can try something else. And that's that I think is a really great bit of flexibility that that we kind of have to do that. And are there any common themes that come out from the people that that you work with? Let's talk specifically about the younger people with cancer. So I guess probably 18 to 30 year olds. Mm. Uh, What are the, are there common themes? I know everybody's very, very different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think there really is. Um, And I think, you know, like I was just saying a bit earlier, it, it tends to change as they go through that pathway so you know if I meet someone right at the beginning they might be struggling to adjust to that diagnosis like what does this mean for me what's going to happen in my future they might feel angry or confused about what's going on and so it's kind of understanding and processing that diagnosis and what that's going to mean for them and the potential impact as they go forward is it going to have an impact on education or work or relationships and hobbies and what's that going to mean for them we might also um, work with people who are making decisions about their treatment so sometimes they're they're really complex decisions to make, mm. aren't they, around treatment and, and what's best for them. So we might help them to make those decisions or to cope with those really complex treatment regimes, especially if that means kind of long periods in hospital. You know, that can be really, really difficult. Um, and we can help sometimes with the effects of those treatments. So things like pain, fatigue, kind of managing those side effects as well. Um, as well as the impact and consequences of treatment afterwards. Um, So it might, you know, they might have huge consequences in terms of changes to the way people communicate or how they eat or their body image, their appearance. There can be really significant consequences and helping people to to really adjust to that and, and what does that mean for life going forward. 
Um, I think one of the the biggest themes I guess I see is is this idea around loss and adjustment and all of those different changes that happen when we're going through something like cancer cancer treatment and helping people to think about um, what does this mean for me now and I think it was one of the things that really struck me listening to the the last episode of of the podcast was they were talking about not comparing themselves to other people Mm -hmm. or to themselves and I think that's so important and I think we all get caught into that don't we as as human beings we do compare ourselves to others but it can be really distressing as well and I think people often come and say you know I, I just want to be back to how my life was before and sometimes that's not possible in the same way and we can think about how does somebody live a life that is meaningful to them even if that looks slightly different to how it did before so I think those kind of things are really those are really important so for example if you've got someone who's having I don't know a year of chemotherapy because that's Mm. what some you know many many people go through and um I guess let's use, you know, Sophie, who was on the last episode, she's really open about the treatment. She's not my patient. She works for me. She's just amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She had she had about a year of treatment. She had to stop university. Then it came back again. She had the stem cell transplant and then she came back again. How if if you were support, I mean, she. I'm not articulating it very well, but she she found a way to maintain her identity and mm-hmm. her identity changed and her life now looks very different to how she imagined it would be before she was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of things do you talk about or, or, or strategies do you, do you kind of advise to help people whose life has literally been pulled away from them to, mm-hmm. to kind of keep that at their identity and and change it I I haven't explained that very well I hope you understand what I mean (laughs) I think yeah I do I do and I think identity is is one of the really key parts of that um and so I think we you know we all we all have this sense of who we are and we often have a sense of where our life is going and what we want to happen and sometimes things come along that change that direction And I think sometimes it's important to recognize that we often grieve for the loss of the things that we hoped would happen or the way that we thought our life was going to be. So often it's about having that space to to grieve for those losses and to acknowledge that that's what it is, that we are, you know, different perhaps than we thought we were going to be or where our life was going. Um, And then to spend some time to say, okay, so what is important to me? in my life and we often talk about values kind of what's really important or what kind of person do I want to be and how can I then live my life in line with that Um, so it's we can sometimes change the goals but keep those values the same so we can Mm -hmm. do what's important to us but sometimes we have to do those in a different way than perhaps we'd planned so I guess that would be the kind of kind of things we'd be talking about and and looking towards and what about um uncertainty about the future so you know Jade and Ashley were talking about living in the moment Mm. um but that's something that I always I sometimes put myself in the place of my patients and I wonder I, I can't I can't think how I would deal with having a cancer that may come back at any point um how do you help people 
deal with that uncertainty? I think that's probably one of the the biggest things that I talk to people about is that uncertainty of the future and how we tolerate that because there is an element of being human that the future is uncertain. None of us can predict what's going to happen and how do we find a way of tolerating that level of uncertainty and I definitely think that idea of of living in the present like what can I do today what's important to me to be focusing on today who's around me that's important to me and how do I spend time with them and so I think it does come back to kind of living by those values and and what's important to them Um, I think the other part about that is is sometimes what's important in terms of being uncertain about things is feeling like we have some control and some choice over what's going to happen and sometimes we don't have a lot of control about the future or a choice about what's going to happen and sometimes it can be helpful to look at life now and and think about where we do have choices doesn't matter how kind of small those choices are there are often parts of our days of our lives that that we can have a choice over and I think kind of acknowledging those bits helps us to feel a little bit more in control and therefore tolerate some of that anxiety I um I did as so when I was an athlete I did quite a lot of sports psychology and mm. I was initially very dismissive of it, actually and and it the person who supported me was a friend and we swam together and she was training as a sports psychologist and she said I think I could help you and I was like no no I don't need that I know. <laughs> um but it it changed me as an athlete it changed the way that I looked at races that I perceived myself as, it, it just changed changed the the whole well it changed everything and actually a lot of the skills that I learned I do use now from day-to-day life you know in in so many ways even doing something like chatting to you I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone or dealing with adversity or, or whatever that is is so useful but um a lot of it was kind of common sense you kind of think well how have I not realized that that's a something that my my brain works that's how my brain works do you is that something that you see quite, quite commonly with people yeah I think so I think there's that sense of often when we talk about things or I might make a suggestion or a way of understanding something that's happened people go oh of course that's so obvious and it is but only sometimes when you're a step back from that Mm. so when you're the person going through something it can be really hard to take that step back and look at it a bit more objectively and that's the advantage that I have is that I can help to do that that bit from a different perspective and sometimes that's part of the skills that I help people develop is how do you you know when you're in the middle of something that's really difficult how do you kind of pause take a step back and think about different perspectives or different ways of doing things Um, because I think we've We've all had that experience where when we're in the middle of something and we just can't see what's going on or a way out of it. Um, so to to have that ability to kind of take that step back, I think can be really helpful. Do you do you give people kind of homework to take away and, and work on and think about? Definitely. Um, so that is that is often part of it. So I think there's there's often two bits really helpful to kind of therapeutic sessions one of that one of those is the conversations we have in the room so the conversations that we have as people tell me about what's going on and and how we talk about that the other part is often this is about learning new skills 
And I can help people to learn those. I can teach them those new skills, but I can't put them into practice for them. And so it does take a commitment from people to do this kind of work, to go away and to practice those skills and to come back and tell me how they've gone. And if it was helpful, brilliant. If it wasn't, how can we do something a little bit different? So it is, you know, sometimes, you know, I think as humans, we can be really impatient when we want something to be different. We oh. want it to be different now. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> it takes that. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it takes that time and that commitment to keep practicing those skills and to to learn how to, you know, when to use those and how to use those. Um, so, yeah, so sometimes that can be that can be tricky, but it's like learning any skill. Um, you know, it takes time and it takes practice. I guess one of the hard things for you is that um, with the people that you work with is that, that cancer is not a, it's a moving goal in some mm. ways and, and you might meet someone and the treatment plan is this and the expectation of the treatments is, is this and then mm. three months down the line it's changed completely and there's been a massive bump in the road and uh, mm. I, how I mean I, yeah I don't that's not really a question but I'm sure it's challenging <laughs> so you have to adapt and help I guess a lot of what you do is giving people the skills to adapt themselves absolutely I think you know we always have that that flexibility built into our work so we might start off working on one particular thing and then something might happen and we shift that or we pause something so we can focus on what's come up particularly that week or if something's changed so there's there's always that flexibility we will always kind of change that focus to meet what somebody needs at that particular time um and that can be challenging for them as well you know I think getting your head around you think you're going in one direction and something happens and it changes and just taking a, a pause and saying okay where are we at now what's happening now what can we do to help at this point um there will always be that that kind of flexibility in there but it, yeah it can be challenging can't it I think I've realized I quite often when I meet someone for the first time um I will always say that that cancer is very unpredictable and this is a plan but the plan is very likely to change and and sometimes you know you meet people and you kind of see them getting their diary out and they're putting the dates in of the chemo and the dates of the third you know planning ahead and I think with experience, I've realized that actually just laying that out quite early on, that that this is a plan and things get in the way and cancer doesn't stick to plans and bloods mm -hmm. don't come back, that can be quite helpful. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's it can be a real double-edged sword, I think, can't it, sometimes if... Sometimes if we know we're facing something difficult, having what feels like an endpoint can be really helpful. Like, I've just got to get through to this point. But when that changes, it can mm. throw our whole plan kind of out the window and, and being able to adjust to that. Um, it is really difficult. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a real, we often want to have a, a sense of a, a timing for things, but it's not always possible, is it? And what about the, you know, this sense of control, like cancer takes control away. How do you, how, how do you help people deal with that? Because that's something that I I would really struggle with, that I have no control over my cancer. There are things that I can control, but I can't control what happens with the cancer. Yeah, I think that's that's really challenging. As there's so much, when I guess often as well, when people come into treatment, they hand a lot of that control over 
to you as the doctors and to the medical team to say, okay, this is this is what we're going to do. This is the way the regime's going to happen. This is what, you know, this is a length of time it might take. And handing that over, I think, can be really difficult. And that we know for all of us, if we're in a position where we feel out of control, that's really challenging. And I think it is about, like I was saying earlier, where can we find those parts of our lives that we are in control of or the choices that we can make within that. So we might not have a choice about needing to spend a week on a ward to have a cycle of chemo. But within that, we can choose how we spend some of that time. So Mm. what can we do within that that is enjoyable for us or that is going to be helpful for us or that means that we can still engage with things that are really important? So I think it's about finding those pockets of choice and control in something that can feel really out of our control. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it is so... I mean, I guess, listen, going back to the to the three, Sophie and Jade and Ashley, they mm. all did that, didn't they? And yeah. and I think they might have had a bit of support along the way. But that's what always strikes me about about young people with cancer, that they do find their own way, their own way through it. Mm. Absolutely. And I think there was a couple of things that they kind of linked to that, that they they talked about, which I thought was incredible. And one of those was about taking small and manageable steps and breaking breaking tasks down like what what's the bit that I can do and those steps or those goals doesn't matter how small they are the the important bit is that they're achievable because that builds our confidence to keep moving forward the other thing that they said that I really liked was about celebrating achievements Mm. and I think that that for me is it's so wonderful when someone comes in and says I did this thing I managed this thing and we can celebrate that achievement and that milestone I think that's so important because during treatment I I guess there can be so many things that we can focus on about what we can't do so I can't do this anymore this is really challenging or I've had to stop doing this and recognizing within that what can I do and those achievements as we kind of rebuild our strength or our um, ability to do whatever it might be. It's so important to to celebrate those things. I thought that was really brilliant that they talked about that. And Sophie's saying she's proud of herself. And, I, mm. I, you know, I I actually often put this in my letters. to So I write my letters to, to patients. So, dear Joe, mm. it was lovely to see you in clinic. But um, and I sometimes wonder whether they just read it and think, God, that's really patronizing. But when I when I look at the way and I, and I actually often say this to them as well, like if you if you'd been told a year ago that you'd be in this situation and you'd be coping with it the way that you are, would you have believed it? And they always go, no, I, I, like, I couldn't I couldn't have done it. And and sometimes you, you, it is it's indescribable to have someone who's 25 who was, you know, walking along the road, broke his leg, found out that he's got cancer in his leg. He's then stuck on a bed for 10 weeks in traction, having chemo, then has to have his leg taken. You just Mm. cannot imagine how you might deal with that. But everyone does, don't they? Yeah. And I think that really speaks to their resilience and their strength and the way that they, you know, and, and finding that support network around them as well. And I think one of the things that can be helpful is something like keeping a diary, because I think you're right often when we look forward we can't imagine where we're going to be and sometimes it's only when we look back we can see how far we've come and something like keeping a diary can be really helpful because it helps us to have that time that says oh well 
this time last month I could you know walk five minutes down the road and Mm. today I walked 10 and having that ability to reflect on how far you've come I think can be really really helpful because it's so hard for us to hold that in our minds when we've got everything else going on as well so sometimes that can be really really helpful yeah yeah that's really true actually and I think as a you know as a doctor it's sometimes quite nice when I don't see people for a week and then you see them and like wow god you're you're so different and and they're like no I'm not you honestly you couldn't get out the chair a week ago and they're like oh yeah you're right I couldn't yeah I like that idea of of actually writing Mm -hmm. it down what did you think about about Jade saying that she wrote her letter when she went in for her her chemo and it was horrible and Mm -hmm. she knew she had another one and she wrote herself a letter to remind herself that she got through it once and and I thought that was brilliant it's a really great idea really great idea I know people that I've worked with previously sometimes will have a phrase that's really helpful for them a kind of reminder about a particular thing and they might keep it as a reminder on their phone or I know people who have um had post-it notes stuck on their mirrors at home of, of little reminders um, of things that are really helpful to you to kind of save themselves or to think about when they're facing something difficult. So I think written reminders, whether it's a letter or a post-it note or anything else, I think they're really, really helpful because it can be so hard to remember those things when you're facing something difficult. I used to do that, actually, as a triathlete. I used to write on my water bottle, believe. So whenever mm. the time got, you know, got tough, I'd have that believe. You can do it. You've done it before. Um, and, and, yeah, another remember the time when. So if mm-hmm. it's getting tough, you take yourself back to a, a different a different time. Yeah. Um, how – so I know some of the people that, that you work with have got incurable cancers and mm. and they, they are going to die from their cancer sometimes quite quite quickly Mm. how do you what kind of what kind of work do you do with with them how do you support them to to come to terms and and deal with Mm. with that yeah I think that that can be a challenge for them and and their families and and everyone around them and I think often it comes back to sometimes just having a space to talk about things that they might not feel they want to share with other people. So I think sometimes this is where it's helpful to have somebody outside their immediate network of family and friends. I think often people don't want to talk about certain things because they're they're afraid of upsetting someone Mm. um, or having those difficult conversations and actually having a space with me or or anyone else where they can come and say those things without having to be worried about upsetting us. Um, And they can come and leave some of those things there. I can... I think can be really, really helpful. Um, there might be certain things that they're they're worried about in that process. So it might be about being in pain or not being able to make decisions that they want to make. So we can think about some strategies to perhaps manage pain or um, we can think about how they might want to share any wishes that they have. And again, this idea of living by our values so even if we're not making a plan for where you want to be in 10 years time what's going to make today important what Mm. what matters to you that you can do today or tomorrow or this week and I think again that that 
kind of living in the moment like how do we make every every day as meaningful for us as we can and focusing on on that present I think can be really helpful have you have you ever had someone where you've thought I just can't can't help I'm really struggling to find a way to help them yeah (laughs) yeah I think that (laughs) I think that does happen you know we don't as much as I would love to have a kind of magic wand for people um we don't and that that can be really difficult and sometimes it's about having that really honest conversation to say I, I'm not sure I'm being the most helpful person for you at the moment. And it might be, and that might be that what they need at that moment is support from someone else. And we can help to facilitate that. So it might be um, a different therapist that's trained in a different model, or it might be actually what they need is support from the medical team or a dietitian or a physio, or, you know, it's, a, and I think I always, make space in my sessions with people to say if this isn't helpful tell me there's no point in keeping going if something isn't feeling helpful and and I guess having that permission there to say if this isn't working let's talk about that and figure out what we can do and I I mean I I think everybody who's diagnosed with cancer should should be offered psychological support but that doesn't happen there isn't the capacity on the Mm. NHS what kind are there are there any resources out there that you that people could be sign you know could signpost themselves to or or good self-help books or videos or or you know what is there I think fortunately there is much more than there used to be. Um, so there are lots of, of books around kind of specific self-help things. Um, there's lots of apps as well now um, that are, are self-help um, or apps that are around kind of mindfulness or relaxation or have um, tips to manage anxiety and things like that. Um, there might not always be the capacity for kind of psychologists within a hospital to see everyone but there are also lots of community support groups charities I think there's lots out there um, and it might be that the support that we can offer people in the hospital is about accessing that and where else they might be able to get support from and what if if people are listening and they you know they've asked their oncologist or their surgeon but they they or their specialist and they haven't got anywhere where where would they go to try and you know to try and get some some extra support I think often the first protocol is a GP. Uh, GPs can okay. refer often to community services. Um, some of the most places have um, a primary ser- primary care service called often called IAP, so it stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. Um, and a lot of those, so our, our local ones in, in Nottingham, you, people can self-refer into, but also mm-hmm. their GP can refer them into to any local services. So I think if someone's thinking, I, actually, I could do with some support, but they're not sure where to go, your GP is often your first, first protocol for that one. And is it is it fair to say that everyone should be able to access support? So if you if you're, you know, someone in the hospital, they might just be they just don't know that it's available. And mm-hmm. but they it, it's very reasonable to go to your GP and say that I should be entitled to get some support. If you don't know where to find it, you need to look. Is that fair? 
absolutely I think you know that the idea is that that everyone should be able to access a level of of psychological support in some way and people might need different levels of support so um as a clinical psychologist working in a in a cancer team I tend to see people who might be struggling with some quite complex difficulties sometimes but there might be other people who need a lower level of support than that and so that might be through their community services or it might be through charities so um Macmillan have a, a telephone counselling service that people can access. We have a Maggie Centre on site. Mm. So I think there's lots of different, there are lot, there is lots of support out there. It's, it's knowing what it is and how to access it that I think is a challenge sometimes, isn't it? And not being afraid to access it because of the stigma yeah. of, of, of kind of thinking, oh, I shouldn't need that. I should be able to mm. deal with it. And- yeah. Something that I'm I always struggle with, and I, I we said before we started, um, I was googling you and I came across <laughs> the talk you're given, you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. And I'd given a talk entitled exactly the same about <laughs> a month ago <laughs> without ever seeing your talk. Um, but it's something that I I feel very strongly about. You know, I work part-time and I, I'm very upfront that I don't think I could do my job five days a week because it's mm-hmm. I find it too intense emotionally and you know I I take stuff home with me in my head not actual mm. work and that I just need I can't I couldn't do it five days I love it but I only love it because I do it part-time mm. um I guess you where's my question in this that I'm really bad at interviewing <laughs> um, <laughs> what, how, how do you think healthcare professionals should look after themselves when they're working with emotionally challenging you know situations because it is tough isn't it it is tough absolutely and I think you know looking after ourselves as professionals is really it's vital for us to be able to provide the best care and support that we can for the people that we're working with Um, that idea if you can't pour from an empty cup is is Mm -hmm. the fact that if if our emotional batteries are running low we don't have the same amount that we can give to other people and so we do have to look after ourselves Um, and I think sometimes that's about knowing ourselves like what what is it for me that helps me to recharge that emotional battery and that's going to be different for everyone and it's about knowing what helps us knowing how to recognize when our emotional battery is running low Mm -hmm. so what tells us that that we're starting to feel that way um and I think you know that again it's something that that clinical psychologists can offer so we might you know not only do we work with patients um but we also provide supervision and support and advice and consultation to to our colleagues and i think sometimes that's really helpful for other members of staff to have a place to come and say do you know what this is really tough like this is really difficult sometimes and and having that space to recognize the impact that it has on us too yeah i think it's something we do really badly as as Mm. doctors and I I think a lot of the nurse specialists clinical nurse specialists have supervisions or can access it and Mm. you know the it just a couple of a few days ago I took a brand new junior doctor in to a young patient um to basically say that her cancer had come back and that I didn't think you know there wasn't there was only a tiny chance that chemo would work and that she might die very quickly and it was a really tough 
conversation probably about an hour and you know walking away I I just I think from it's harder actually just watching something like that from the outside mm. when you don't have the relationship with with the patient um but as a brand new junior doctor it, it, it's all it's probably quite traumatizing and I try mm. to acknowledge that and say you know I go home sometimes and I cry or you know my way of dealing with it mm. is riding my bike until I stop thinking about it and I know that that's for me what I need to do um mm. but sometimes I do burst into tears sometimes I get really angry just because that you know it's all just built up and built and that's when I know I need a holiday yeah um, but all I did was acknowledge it and say that's shit it's awful watching it it's okay to be sad mm. <laughs> well yeah. how can we support how can we support junior doctors a bit more when they you know when they are exposed to stuff mm. like that I think that acknowledgement is is so important and I think that goes for for any of us for just being human that sometimes we have to acknowledge where we're at with things what's difficult and the challenges that we face and then I think it is about providing that space to talk about it to reflect on it to think together about what that means for us and then those things around what do you need to help manage that absolutely mm. and and you know we're we're human aren't we you know we're working with other human beings and we are going to be affected by the things that are affecting them and sometimes we will feel angry about what's happening and sometimes we'll feel really sad and that that's okay and that mm. that isn't that isn't a weakness and I think you know actually there's a strength in being able to say I feel angry about this. I feel sad about this. Um, and to voice those and to have a space where that's, that is acknowledged. I think that that's really, really important. Could you come and maybe you could um, come and do a session with it, you know, once every couple of months with the juniors. Cause I just say, I think it's mm. so hard, even, even more on the, you know, they're, they're not part of a team as such. They get different consultants like me swanning on and just being exposed to something like that without the continuity and the, the follow-up mm. it, mu it must be so challenging I think that yeah <laughs> have you got time <laughs> well you know we do run we do run some groups and you know we do we do definitely offer that because I think we acknowledge just how difficult it is and for me supporting my colleagues and the rest of the team is is a really vital part of that work so yes absolutely <laughs> said it live now <laughs> what's the most I know you can't give specifics but what do you think is the, the most rewarding thing that that you've done kind of outcome whatever the best bit the best bit of your career so far oh gosh um <laughs> I think for me Sometimes the most rewarding thing is when someone that I've been working with comes to me and says, this has been really great, but I don't need to see you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because what that says is, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. I've got these skills, I know that I can deal with these things and they don't, they don't need my support in doing that anymore. So that is just wonderful. And I think, you know, really getting to share the celebration of those milestones of those achievements with people and when people say you know what if they have a task to go and try that week or some homework to do between sessions sometimes I'll get a text or they'll come into the next appointment and say I did it like I did it <laughs> it really helped yeah. <laughs> sometimes you have to experience something you know it's all very well me saying well you know this thing might be really helpful for you to try until someone tries it 
and it is helpful that's the point that they say oh okay yeah this, this works this is good <laughs> I can so imagine. I think, mm, seeing people kind of really living a life that that means so much to them that's wonderful yeah I can imagine that must be I, I guess the only parallel I get is supporting people to kind of be active if they thought that mm. they couldn't and 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 that's something because so often what we do is we give you know drugs that are horrible and they might treat the cancer but they're fundamentally not not great but actually encouraging and supporting people to get outside and see the difference that that makes yeah. that's a, a tangent and I guess you know that little building up I guess it's the only the only parallel that I have maybe I don't know mm. I think you know something you were, you were saying earlier about how you know in your appointments with people in, and in your letters, you acknowledge those achievements. And I've read, you know, some of the letters that you've written to to patients that we're both working with. And I love being, I love reading that in your letters and just think, yes, you know, it's really important to encourage people and to acknowledge these things that, that are going well. Because often it's so yeah. much about, you know, it's, it's often, sometimes it's not great. And actually being able to acknowledge those bits in that, I think is really helpful. So, I think it's brilliant that you do that with people. Sometimes you, you, you must think the same. It'd be really nice to just get really honest feedback to say, like, which bits do you like, which, which bits don't you like? Uh, it's obviously different for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Naomi, I, could, like, I feel like I've learned so much talking to you. I just, I feel there's so, so many topics that, that, you could explore um but yeah. I've I've certainly understood a little I mean it's been all over the place but um, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more about the amazing amazing work that you that you do with people mm. what it I mean not not for now but in the show notes are there any specific kind of books that are or apps that that you think might be help might be worth knowing about free ones or um mm. not on the tip of your tongue maybe need to go and look yeah, I think it, it really varies on what people are looking for. So I think it's quite, I'm not sure there's anything particularly general yeah. out there. Um, it would tend to be something, you know, there, there are lots of specific things. So it, I think it would depend on what people are looking for in particular. Um, but yeah, there are, there are, I mean, there's loads of apps, but also, you know, things like YouTube is really helpful. There's loads of free videos and things on mm. YouTube around, um good health, uh, good sleep hygiene, um, relaxation strategies, kind of anything like that, I think can be really helpful. We might call on you to help create a, a helpful link section of the website, because um, that would be that would be good. It'd be nice Excellent. to have somewhere specific mm. to find those people too. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for chatting. Um, yeah, it's, it's been brilliant getting to know you a little bit, but <laughs> I think all my patients are super lucky <laughs> to be able to spend some time with you. Um, so thanks ever so much. Thank you so much, uh, Naomi, for chatting to me. Um, I definitely feel like I learned a lot. Um, I also feel like I was a little bit all over the place with all over the place with questions. Uh, so sorry about that um, one of the things that we were talking about uh, was resources and since we recorded the episode uh, Naomi's got back to me with a couple of apps uh, that might be helpful um, so they're associated with Macmillan and Big Health and there are two apps uh, one for sleep it's called Sleepio and one for anxiety called Daylight um, and I think they're free for people with cancer um, 
we will put a link to those in the show notes um and yeah have a have a look and and if you do want some support they may they may be helpful um if you have worked with a psychologist or you've developed your own strategies that you'd like to share do let us know uh we'd love to hear from you um and we're always interested in hearing stories and you know if you've if you've got a message that you'd like us to share on the podcast um please do just get in touch we've now got uh, a little bit of a bonus episode completely different note um so the backstory to this is back in 2019, uh, for those of you who don't know, I used to be a professional triathlete. And one of my very last races, uh, in fact, my penultimate race was the Norseman Triathlon, uh, which is a crazy triathlon in Norway. Um, and the reason I did this race was because the sponsor, Solaris for the triathlon, uh, had heard that I was very interested in supporting people with cancer uh, to stay active. And the previous CEO of Zolaris um, was, I can't remember if he had died or was dying of pancreatic cancer. So Hans Petter, who is the current CEO of Zolaris, wanted to support charities uh, that um, helped people with cancer to stay active. He'd heard about me. Uh, we had a couple of phone conversations with Doug, who's the organizer. Anyway, I ended up uh, going to Norseman and doing the race. And amazingly, uh, my support crew to run up the mountain was an incredible lady uh, called Hella Anson, um, who'd founded Active Mockcraft or Active Against Cancer, which is an incredible Norwegian charity uh, that builds um, gyms and exercise classes for people with cancer in all the big Norwegian hospitals. It's truly amazing. Anyway, it's just one of those, from my point of view, a completely happy collaboration in that triathlon has led to meeting people um, who support and share the, the beliefs that I have around supporting people with cancer to stay active. Um, and following on from that, I went over to Norway uh, again. I did a talk, uh, a talk with um, Active Mark Kreft at uh, one of their fundraising days. Um, I've got to know Hans Petter and Hans Petter has set up a team Zolaris who, um, Go to Race Norseman fundraising for Active Mockcraft and also for 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer. So um, a massive thank you to Zolaris. They actually started supporting us very, very early on. Um, and in this next little bit, um, Georgie talks to Sinead, who uh, raised nearly £8,000 for us um, in order to race the Norseman Triathlon. Sinead talks about her experience racing the race. It's a crazy race. If you want to hear about something completely bonkers, listen to her describe it. Um, but then she also talks about how having entered the race, got the place for the race, raised the money for the race, she then actually gets diagnosed with cancer herself um, in a very early stage. Um, but how that's kind of influenced her and, and made all the fundraising and the training, et cetera, for the race even more meaningful. Um, so it's an interesting lesson. It's something completely different. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, but I do want to say a huge, huge thank you to Hans Petter, to everybody at Zolaris, and uh, of course to Sinead Conley. Um, so enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Georgie, I'm the 5k away operational manager and we've got Sinead here. Thanks so much for joining Sinead. So first we're going to talk about Norseman. Sinead's just done Norseman, what was it like a month ago now? I think three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Norseman is a crazy, crazy triathlon. She's going to tell us all about it. Um, we're super lucky to have had Sinead fundraise for Move Charity because she got a place through Norseman with Team Zolaris. So 
can you tell us for everyone anyone that doesn't know Sinead what is what is Norseman? Uh, so Norseman is an Ironman distance triathlon uh, that's set in Norway so it's their version of Ironman which is why they call it Norseman uh, so it's 3.8k swim in a fjord uh, they drive you out to the middle of the fjord in a car ferry well a ferry and you jump off the front and you swim back to shore then it's 180k bike up kind of over some mountain plateaus uh, in very changeable weather and then a 42k run that finishes on the top of a mountain called Gaustatoppen. Said so casually and clearly not so such a <laughs> casual experience. So firstly why? Why did you want to do Norseman? That All of that crazy and you also didn't really talk about the elevation. Oh yeah so it's pretty hilly it's kind of I guess touted it's an extreme triathlon because it's so hilly and because the weather can be quite bad um and it's touted as being one of the hardest triathlons in the world um and that's mostly to do with the elevation uh and the weather and on the day that we raced we saw kind of every season it was mad uh, the way that the weather changed so quickly um so I had done triathlons before I did my first Ironman full Ironman distance uh, race in 2016 and in 2017 the super random I think I was looking for a race to do in Iceland because I had just visited there and thought it was amazing and then somehow I ended up on the Norseman YouTube page and I watched this video of the Norseman race and I think when some people watch videos like that they're like that's stupid I'm never going to do that I saw it and was like oh my god like this race was made for me I need to do this race and I don't know why I actually can't tell you why, but it looked beautiful. Like the scenery is incredible. It looked like something that was really hard. And I think I'm drawn to things that are difficult. Um, my therapist might be able to tell you a bit more about why. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it just like completely stood out to me. So I entered the ballot that year. Didn't get in. Entered the ballot in 2018. Entered the ballot 2019. Didn't get in. So then when... Zolaris announced that there was going to be a charity team I was like yes please have me on your team um and initially I didn't make it but I uh when they said that I got shortlisted and then didn't get on the team so I emailed um the person who was organizing it and just said oh you know why not just so I know for next time because I'm definitely going to be trying next year <laughs> and she was uh, she like you know other people were more organized they seemed like they were going to be better at fundraising so I was like that's cool I'll be more on it next year. And the next day I got a phone call to say uh, one of the women who we gave a place to, actually, uh, she's kind of overcommitted to not be able to do it. So do you want to? I was like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and she was like, we should have given it to the enthusiastic person, not the organized person. I was like, yes, I will be enthusiastic and I will be organized. And you are yeah. de definitely both. <laughs> so that's how I ended up on uh, the Zolaris team and fundraising for a move against cancer. Awesome. And how did it go? How did the race go? It was incredible. Uh, so basically, oh yeah. So the other thing about the race is that not everyone gets to finish on top of the mountain. So there's usually about 250 starters every year and the first 160 get to finish at the top of the mountain. So my thing was, I just wanted to finish at the top of the mountain. And even if I didn't, that would have been okay. But I was like, you know, I really want to get up there. So I had a plan, which was to try and get through the checkpoint in 12 hours and 15 minutes. So my whole day was kind of centered around this checkpoint. Um, and I made it with, I can't remember, 
28 places to spare or something like that so in the end it kind of felt easier than maybe I than it was or maybe than I thought it was going to be because I didn't have to battle it out for those kind of last few places to get up the mountain um so the swim was incredible the jump off the ferry was like magic I thought about it so many times over the last like five years uh so it was kind of surreal and hard to believe that I was there so I was stood on the edge of the boat kind of take it all in and then everyone was like jump hurry up jump <laughs> you're like I'm trying to take in this moment <laughs> uh, so I jumped and then was in the water for like 10 minutes before we started just like and it's gorgeous like the sun hasn't come up yet it's bright but you know it's kind of before sunrise so it's that really dark time of the morning the fjord is dark um you know they told us the day before apparently the fjord is 400 meters deep like it's just this really intense experience and it's beautiful and it's just you and it's silent and just amazing like everyone should go and watch the videos and do this race it's just unbelievable so start to swim swim was great um got out of the swim no dramas uh, i really enjoyed i always really enjoy the swim and triathlons and kind of want to stay there because I think for me it's the easiest bit and it's kind of low stress you just have to get to the end of it um so I got out got my bike gear on got onto the bike started cycling and it was raining at that point so uh the first 40k is all uphill so the kind of profile is the races that you go up 40k up to the plateau which is 1250 meters above sea level uh so that took a couple of hours um and the cold wasn't a problem because you're like working really hard going uphill and then you get up over the top and you start to descend. And at that point, you realize you're soaked, right? All of us are completely soaked to the skin and it's freezing. And the clouds have closed in and you can't really see past like 20, 30 meters in front of you. So that was kind of a, probably the low moment of the day for me that I was like, this actually could be a problem if it gets too cold. Like it's hard to come back from that. So, um, Another thing about the race, you have to bring your own support crew. So it's completely unsupported. So I had my friend and my boyfriend um, in a car and they kind of saw me every 30 or 40 K on the bike. So the next time I saw them, I put some extra layers on. And then after that, I was fine. So kept moving on the bike. It's like up, down, up, down, up, down uh, until the last climb is a 7 K climb up over to the kind of other end of the plateau and I had done that climb the week before so I kind of knew what was coming and felt pretty good managed to get up there nice and steady uh, the kind of pace that I wanted to hold and then the last 30k is a descent all the way down into the valley for uh, transition number two and that was cool I am a bit of a scaredy cat so actually I probably went slower than I should have uh, at the top of that descent is all like switchbacks so I was pumping the brakes and all these men came like pondering past me. One of them, the CEO of Zolaris, gave me a little wave. Um, Shout out to Hans Petter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we'd been kind of like leapfrogging each other for about 30 or 40K before that. So they all beat me on the descent. Um, got down into the valley and it was actually quite warm down there. So we'd been super cold up on the plateau and now it was about 17 or 18 degrees in the valley. So uh, took all my layers off or I'd like lost a few layers on the bike and then got ready to start running and then I had said I didn't want to know what position I was in until I got off the bike in case it I had started getting a bit too competitive so got off the bike 
uh, and found out I was number 132. So pretty safe, but you know, I needed, I had 32K of running to get to the checkpoint and no idea who was behind me. So started running, felt pretty good. Uh, was probably running a bit too fast because when I saw my support crew at 8K, uh, my friend Kate told me to slow down, <laughs> have an energy gel. You know, today is not the day for breaking records. So just chill. chill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite nice because like people are passing you out, you're passing out people, but everyone is like giving people encouragement. And anytime someone passed me, I was like, lads, relax. What's the rush? Why don't you just run with me? Where are you going? <laughs> um, so it was really nice. And like, that was the kind of atmosphere throughout the whole day was supportive. You know, people cheering each other on, people giving each other gear, people helping each other out. Um, awesome. Yeah. And like Hans Pezzer's support crew were two of his really good friends. And because I was wearing head to toe Zolaris gear, they kept offering me gels and water, making sure that I was okay amazing yeah it was really cool and then yeah I got to the bottom of what they call zombie hill which starts at 25k and at that point your support crew is allowed to run with you so my friend Kate uh came with me and we started running but everyone else was walking so we just walked up the hill to the checkpoint um so it was number 137 I think at the bottom of zombie hill only one person passed us who was another Zolaris team member Flora um, she ran the whole thing. She's a machine. So she came thundering past and we just like kept walking, hiking, like furiously hiking because yeah. still didn't want to take any chances. Paranoid, like looking behind us, is anyone coming? And eventually got to the checkpoint 32K, which was like where my plan kind of ended. Yeah. Because that was kind of my finish line. Um, burst into tears, absolutely thrilled. And then had to keep going. <laughs> So for another 10k up the mountain kept uh, kept walking up the mountain and then 5k later you get to the entrance to the mountain and at that point you have to have at least one of your support teams so both of mine came with me and you need a backpack with a light a phone food and some warm clothes in case the weather changes because it can change really quick up there yeah because you're up at like you know the mountain finishes 1800 meters above sea level yeah um so the last 5k took us forever took me forever because I was just a bit slow my brain was a bit slow everything was a bit slow I probably hadn't eaten enough the last few hours so I put all my layers on we're walking up the mountain and it was just kind of I then was feeling really low didn't really want to be there anymore like why do I do these things I'm never doing a triathlon again blah 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 and it took about an hour hour and 45 minutes to do the last 5k um but this was like where I had wanted to be for the last five years you know this was like the culmination of many years of daydreaming and planning and all the rest of it and I made it we got to the top did my like you go up the last steps you hold your arms up and there's this iconic photo of me on the top of the mountain incredible what a story what a race so so cool awesome huge congratulations and massive shout out and thanks to team Zolaris for all of their support and obviously shout out to you for your incredible fundraising as well so I'm just going to fast forward I'm sorry rewind um kind of into the training of all of that and tell us about that and how the the build-up went yeah so it was kind of a weird timeline I guess because we found out in 2020 that we had our places as part of the charity team but then 2020 was cancelled um 
obviously uh something happened in 2020 I can't remember what it was but no no uh, idea <laughs> uh so kind of cracked on with my fundraising and uh I, didn't, I nailed it yeah I did I was trying to decide what could I do because everyone knew that I wanted to do this race I couldn't just ask for money to do this like race that I'd wanted to do for years and I'd been training on this hill in North London called Swain's Lane that's 70 meters long no wait 70 meters tall 900 meters long and a lot of people were doing Everesting because of lockdown so I was like well this would be a pretty cool thing like if I because it's good for training obviously with Norseman being so hilly I had to do a lot of hill training with it being locked down I couldn't go anywhere so I was just doing laps of this hill anyway so I was like maybe I'll Everest it what that is ever like for anyone race. that doesn't know what is Everesting it? is you do a hill over and over and over until you reach the height of Everest. So this nice. hill was only 70 meters tall, maybe 80 meters tall. So we had to do 125 laps. As you do. To Everest, yeah. So it took me 22 hours. I did it, started one Saturday night and did it all through the Sunday. And it was amazing. It was great. So I raised all my money and then that was kind of September 2020. And then coming into Christmas that year, I started having some stomach problems. Uh, so I got those checked out and through like various very lucky coincidences um, when they did a colonoscopy they found a tumour in my rectum which wasn't causing the symptoms at all so it was like total chance. What was causing the symptoms was ulcerative colitis which is an inflammatory bowel disease Um that's kind of anyway that was the thing causing them that's not life-threatening that's just something I have to manage. Um, but they got in there, they found this tumor called a neuroendocrine tumor, which is a relatively rare form of cancer um, that grows really slowly, uh, usually doesn't give out any symptoms until it's already spread, uh, and then it can be really dangerous. So I was just so lucky that they found it when they found it. It was grade two, um, and they managed to remove it with surgery. So I didn't have to have any treatment, which is amazing. Um, so that kind of went on for a few months. So I probably had a few months of kind of not knowing uh, what the outcome was going to be, what I was going to have to do. Was I going to need treatment? So I had time off training. I then deferred my 2021 entry to 2022, which most people ended up having to do anyway, because Norway had quarantine rules by the time it came to the 2021 race. So then I started training again. And then there was a bit of kind of like training, not training, training, not training with my colitis, trying to figure that out. So once 2022 started, <laughs> uh, I then managed to get like into my groove, doing a lot of hill training. Um, I would train again on Swain's Lane. I would run on Swain's Lane. I'm based in London, so I did a lot of cycling down in Kent. Um, and then I did Ironman UK in July, which is a very hilly course as a training session and to kind of test out my bike, my gear, my because I was wearing Zolaris triathlon gear that I hadn't worn in a race before, my nutrition, and I had a great day out there, just took it super easy. Um, and that was amazing. And then I headed out to Norway kind of two weeks before the race and had about a week of training out there, which was incredible. Uh, so, yeah. Amazing. And looking back now, obviously, you kind of were part of Team Zolaris fundraising for Move Charity, obviously, before your di the diagnosis. Um, now does it mean anything different to you having fundraised seven thousand how much five hundred pounds for us amazing yeah I mean it's a pretty like it's weird the way things happened yeah uh, and yeah I think like kind of looking into move charity before my diagnosis I just thought it was an incredible thing like I'm a firm believer in the effect of exercise 
on anyone, especially people who have been sick. And then for me, uh, I wasn't actually ill with my tumor, you know, it hadn't started to cause symptoms for me. So for me, it was more the kind of uh, mental and emotional effect that I get from exercise that was so important for me. And I definitely felt when I wasn't training, um, I felt worse, I felt sadder, you know, I felt pretty crappy about what was happening to me. Um, and I think being able to get back to exercise helped me deal with it more. Um, and I just think that, you know, what moving as cancer is doing is incredible and getting people moving and getting people to understand the effect of exercise on your body is such a valuable, incredible thing. Um, and the more people who know about it, the better. So I think you guys are doing amazing work. Awesome. Final quick question. Anyone listening, um, you know, that might think, oh, my God, this girl is absolutely mad, this crazy triathlon you know what if they've just been diagnosed or maybe their friend or family member has um or maybe they're going through treatment at the moment and having now you know obviously had that diagnosis yourself but fortunately obviously not been ill but having all of this crazy background in in triathlon you know if someone thinks this is absolutely mad what would you say to them just to actually you know get off the sofa and just start that journey of moving against cancer so I think for me, I only started running when I was 23 and my first run was a kilometer, right? And like, I thought the first time I managed to run three kilometers that that was incredible. And then fast forward a few years and I've done my first Ironman. Like everybody has to start somewhere. And when somebody first described an Ironman to me, I was like, but that's impossible. Like that's stupid. What, what, do you, what are you talking about? That's insane. Whereas now that I've done it, I actually don't even think it's that impressive. Like I've normalized that to myself now. Whereas before I thought it was impossible. And you just, it's like baby steps, one kilometer, three kilometers, Ironman is generally the way it goes. <laughs> with a little bit of a gap between the three and the K and the Ironman, <laughs> but we'll go with that. <laughs> Thanks so, so much for chatting, Sinead. That was awesome. Really great to have you on. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been a bit of a marathon. Well done if you got to in at the end of it. Um, as always, if you've got ideas, questions, comments, um, interview, you know, potential suggestions for for new guests, uh, do just get in touch. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks and we will be back in a fortnight. Take care. Bye. Bye.